thanks, Ben, for praying for us and reading our, the Word of God. And Miriam, we thank you for your testimony. We thank God for work that has been done. I thought that was truly God-honoring testimony. It encouraged me this morning. We pray that um, your life, would, that we will talk about today, that we would not look back in our former self, but look forward to the grace that has been given to us and the future grace that is to take place. So I'm here today also. Um, there was a little bit of a confusion last week. There are no more conspiracy going on. Everything is done and over with. I put that to rest. And James wrote me an email this week. Looks like the Kazakhstan trip is going really well. God is answering our prayers. And um, those of you who are preparing for Kazakhstan mission team, you, know, you start getting ready to speak Russian real soon. So uh, get polished up in your Russian and get ready to go. Things are going to probably happen and it's coming together really nicely and uh, we're encouraged by that and thank God for answered prayers there. On to the message today. You know, believers have, we have a position um, in God and it's been given to us undeservingly, given to us richly through His mercy and grace. You know, I'm a, this year, um, I've said it, I've, I tried to hold this model up for a long time. You know, I've coached many teens, but I vowed never to coach my own children. But I got into it this year with Derek. I'm Derek's one of his baseball coaches. And, you know, we got nine-year-olds. Some kids are different. One kid is almost big as me, and you get kids like Derek's size. And every inning, we tell them the p- what position to go, to go to. And some kids just won't get it. So I go, you're in left field. And he goes, where's left field? And <laughs> the kids go out there in the outfield. You know, you're a little bit removed from the plate, action. Some kids lose interest. They're looking at other. They're chewing on their gloves. They get their bubble gum. They're putting out there, and they don't know what to do once they're out there. And we ask the kids to move on every pitch, and kids just sometimes don't come along as quickly as I hoped and uh, hoped they would be. But as those are kids. But today, in light of that, believers have a position in Christ. And I want to talk about what the Scripture says, the truth of Scripture. It is very important for us to understand our position. I think in the, on our daily lives, we should think about what our position, what we have. You know, God is sovereign over our lives. And there are many things that happen to us because um, the position we have. You know, in baseball, there are... Nine positions, right? Nine positions people could play. But in life, there are only two positions. In, our, in God's sight, there are only two positions. One, unbeliever. Second, a believer. Okay? And upon that, everything has to do with everything falls upon those two categories. God sees this world in two ways. Not culturally, not ethnically, not economically or socially, but two ways. The spiritual standing, spiritual positions, believers and unbelievers. And I want to talk about the responsibilities today for a believer who has that spiritual position in God, has security. But the effect of that grace and the hope that we have and the actions necessary because we have that position of righteousness. And just do a quick background. I'll go through it real quickly. You know, Apostle Peter, you know everything a lot about him. You know, you've seen the movie Passion. I haven't seen it yet, but I heard there's a courtyard scene. I think that's one of the most poignant uh, moments in the Bible when Peter sees Christ across that courtyard. You know, I, 
I get chills when I think about that. Can you imagine how Peter felt? And but to God's grace, that changed him. Without that, Peter probably wouldn't have become a man that he is. He became later on through that most humbling of humblest moments of his life. Later on, you know, a man who denied Christ three times in a very short period of time, who ended up giving his life for him and dying, they say the church tradition says, upside down. You know, he was a fisherman by trade, didn't have much education. The man who kind of lived according to his impulses, but he was later on, he had the courage to live for Christ and he penned this beautiful epistles, two letters in the New Testament, which was canonized. And we see the change that he has gone through in, his, in God's perfect time. And later on in Second Peter 1, he talks about, in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 14, says, Knowing that surely I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. He knew he was going to die, and after he penned the second letter, he soon died, um, not too long after that. You know, this epistle was written soon after uh, Nero had burned down Rome and used Christians as the scapegoats. So there's, it's in light, Peter's encouraging a situation. Christians were down and out at this time. He's addressing a situation when believers are suffering, and suffering was not easing up, it was escalating. Persecution was at its height and hostility was tremendous. And Peter believed that encouragement was absolutely necessary. You know, Christians were losing their social standings, losing everything they had. They had lost honor, reputation, losing their jobs, possessions. Everything was being confiscated. They were destitute, penniless, driven from their homes. Some children were sold as slaves, driven away as slaves. And the worst was some people were thrown into the arena to, the die, to face death in the hands of wild animals. And it was a difficult thing, truly. That once, once We can't fathom as Christians in the United States these, of this century. I'm sure many saints have wondered, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you have wondered what promise do I have? What position do I have in God that's worth trusting to give up everything, even to death? I'm sure some Christians ask that question. Was that promise real? Was it truly real? Was it necessary? So Peter answers that question. He gives, he points to the position that we have as Christians, the saints of that day, of the New Testament, first century, and say, Will you have hope in life? Because, because God has given you grace. And it's not grace from the past only, but it's grace that is to come. And it's a tremendous encouragement, um, which I'll share today. In the context surrounding this text, in the New Testament, when anything starts with therefore, introduces a, a Christian obligation and responsibility usually, and followed by doctrinal foundation upon that idea, the purpose. And here, Peter exp- Peter's explanation, the first 12 verses is encouraging, strengthen his readers, the early Christians who are being persecuted. He's strengthening them. And he also gives a remedy of what happens, what th- we are to do. You know, 
Peter places in the earlier verses the hope and the reasoning for rejoicing. The future of Christian hope, being born again and obtaining an inheritance and our position that is reserved in heaven. In verses 10 and 11 speaks about the Old Testament prophets spoke of their grace, what they searched intently, and the new covenant that was to do the same. Again, the mounting persecution, and it was real at that time. And at the end of this chapter, he, I think one of the most marvelous passages in the entire Bible, he encourages them this way. He said, you have been purified by the souls of obeying the truth in order to show sincere mutual love. So love one another earnestly from a pure heart. You have been born anew, not from perishable, but from imperishable seed through the living and enduring Word of God. Well, truly, Miriam and all the believers here, what, you have, what we have received, what has been given to us, is truly, that is not perishable, but it is the enduring Word of God. Therefore, we will persevere, we will endure. What we suffer in this earth, it's temporary. And Peter tells us a couple reasons why we should remember what a position and what it points to. The first one it points to in verse 13 is hope. That is the first command. He lays out the encouragement and he tells him to hope. But before that, there's a couple secondary commands that Peter also covers. One is that he says to gird up. Gird up your minds. Then he says keep sober. The first one, gird up your loins of your mind. It's kind of um, out there for us in modern day um, living in America. None of us really wear robes or have to gird up anything, right? But you know, in that day, people had long robes, men and women. And when they had to gear up for something, they had to tie the thing up so they would be prepared for actually, literally, there's another translation is ready for action. Okay? Actually, in the first Passover, in Egypt, in Exodus 12, the Israelites observed Passover, first Passover, girded, ready for action. They didn't know what was going to happen. It was the first one, right? So it's getting ready for action. So it's a physical thing, but what, what Peter means here is not a physical thing, but it's a physical uh, picture of hoping fully in grace. It's preparing your minds for action. Mind for action. What is that? What are we to be active in? What is the mind to be doing that produces hope? What is that? The answer is the truth. Okay? Hope happens when we have hope as Christians because we understand the truth. We need to be girded up in the truth. Promise of the future, reality of the future comes up, uh, comes to us by understanding the truth. It says, verse 13, second part of verse 13 says, grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. To be brought. It is pointing to the future. Future grace. At the end, there will be Christ. In, we have that position. That will be secure. So therefore, we need to have internal, eternal focus. Eternal perspective. If we're going to impact anything, it's not to impact while we're on this earth, impact things of this world that will perish, but impact for the kingdom of God, right? In sports, they say there are impact players. You know, like 
the Michael Jordans of the world. Okay. Uh, Derek Jeter's, Alex Rodriguez. They're impact players. Not Alex Cora's and, you know, Brian Cook and some of these guys. But impact. We, what we make impact in this, wor- this world is it'll perish. It'll burn. But we need to be impacting the kingdom of God. We'll, we need to do things to impact what's ha- to happen in the future. One of the best ways is to evangelize. You help someone, you lead someone to Christ, that impacts the kingdom. That's a direct effect on the kingdom, right? And that's what we're focusing on here. This is placing ourselves in position to be used by God. One who understands truth, one who understands godly living, living in obedience, is one who places himself or herself in the position to be used to be in position to be able to be uh, used when you submit, when we submit to God's will. God's will. Okay. So we need to remember, in verse 14, we'll jump ahead, that Peter also says, we can't be, that do not conform to the former lusts which were in your ignorance. And that's what Miriam talked about. What happens to us, because we still have our sinful nature, it draws us, our former lusts, our former wants, desires. People can't let that go. Even Christians have a hard time letting, letting that go. Why? Because we're ignorant. Ignorant to what? To the truth of Scripture. Okay. When you're completely ignorant, you're completely ignorant to God. Have no saving knowledge, no truth about God. So what is the remedy for that? It's knowledge. Knowledge. How does knowledge happen? Through understanding Scripture, understanding the Word of God. In order, when you gird up in the truth, meaning, it means one whose mind acts biblically, mind that thinks biblically, mind that is foundation and immersed in biblical truths. In Ephesians 6.14, Paul says, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. That's a correlating passage. Girded your loins with truth. That's what we're to gird ourselves with. Dr. Heber writes in uh, regarding this passage, it is the steady state of mind that evaluates things correctly so that it is not thrown off balance by new fascinating ideas. You know, a lot of times, what is one of the uh, biggest things, you go to Barnes & Noble or Amazon.com, what fads come all the time, come and go every year? Number one thing, different diets, right? Different diets come all the time. Some work for some people. If it works for you, great. But it comes up with new ideas all the time. You know, you know, you know that, you remember the Pritikin diet? Pritikin diet, that's about 25 years ago, right? 25 years ago. <laughs> Pritikin diet was all carbs diet, right? Which, which is, you know, it's pretty much sacrilegious in modern society today in America, right? It comes ideas. Ideas will come and go, and ten years from now, different diets will come. See, if you follow those trends, you'll just be going up and down, doing things of this world. See, that's why, that's when ignorance happens. If we're not grounded in the truth of God, if the Bible, the Word of God is not the authority in your life, you'll be tossed and throw and go all over the place, following different trends of this world. It is not satisfying. It is not satisfying. 
That's why Paul says, gird your loins with the truth. It's, it's engaged mind with the truth. Understanding the hope we have through grace. Romans 15.4, Paul also writes, Whatever was written in former times was written for your instruction, that by steadfastness and encouragement of Scripture we might have hope. We have hope. We don't have to hope in anything else except the truth and understanding the grace. So this is what Peter is saying. You know, you're going through all this trouble. We're having very, I know the persecution you're facing. I'm facing them with you. But have hope. Hope because there's promise in the future. But we need to hope. While we're waiting for the future, during that time, get a hold of yourself. Don't get your minds distracted. How easily is your mind distracted when you're about to perhaps be thrown into the lions, right? Or you're losing your children. Losing your homes, all your possessions. Can your minds be distracted? But how does diet compare to that? It's umpteen times the persecution that we would ever face here. Huge multiples, right? doesn't even compare. That's what Peter is saying. Hope in that. But to do that, get a hold of yourself. Let your mind not wander off in fear anxiousness of losing whatever but hold your mind immerse yourself in the truth and you hold on to that that's what Peter is saying secondly secondary second secondary command is keeping sober keep sober in the spirit you know when it talks about sober what is opposite is drunkenness and Bible often talks, talks about that that's also self-controlled one who is self-controlled. You know, it implies the mind again. And it implies alertness. Evaluating things correctly. Thinking clearly. Thinking clear so that your mind is free from any intoxicating influences. Free from tangible or intangible sources. Tangible sources, if you're into alcohol and drugs, obviously it's going to clear up your... Uh, it's going to distort your thinking and lead you to... Confusion. But it could be anything else. Anything else. Whatever. If I don't know. If your diet, if you're following these things, you could be clouded in that. And that's your objective. But one other thing I could think about is, um, you know, you say, people often say in this world, right? Love is blind, right? Love can cloud the thinking. And I was thinking about my brother Gary. Love can make people write such things. It drives a man like Gary to write such sensitive letters. You know, I know all the sisters were cheering on. I heard like a lot of applause. But you know, we're all most of us who have I think all of us who have been married, we've been in love. At least you know, hopefully you're still in love. But you know, you, when you're first in love, it causes you to do some sometimes irrational and sometimes reg- reg- regrettable things. But, you know, that's not just love, but anger. Anger, if a person is, just can't let go of that anger, being engulfed and embittered, often they become irrational. They'll do something they'll regret. Maybe sometimes regret for the rest of their lives. Also fear or anxiousness. Okay? It could take a hold of a person. Right? All those things are intoxicating to the mind. 
And Peter is saying, free yourself from that and be rooted in the truth. To be sober, is that's what it means. It's free from mental or emotional excess. To be able to function spiritually with sound judgment. With sound judgment. So in real life, if we are longing to obey God's Word, understanding His, the grace that has been given to us, we can't be numb by the values of this world, the ideas of this world, because it distorts reality for us, spiritual reality, and our minds can become insensitive to that. What is that called? It is called sin, right? Sin. The point is, keeping sober means knowing what numbs our minds. We are all tempted by different things. And we need to be able to avoid them and keep ourselves from them and stay sober. Then becomes, after two secondary commands, Peter gives us the main command, main verb in this is hope, set your hope or hope, fix your hope or hope fully, completely. You know, the concept of hope in this entire epistle is very prominent. Okay, he uses to encourage the saints during difficult times, as I said, during persecution. This is the eschatological hope, hope of the end. Okay, the grace of God. The day that we'll be with Christ as recipients of that grace. That's the proper response to our salvation, right? Proper response to understanding our position is hope. You know, this is not a partial hoping. It's just hope fully. Fully carried by the hope. Having that peace of mind. Thanks, Mike. The grace of God leads us to hope. And in, in Christianity, God, we know that God is gracious, freely saving His people. You know, man hoping fully in that grace, understanding the future is the essence of Christianity. We live this life. We live this life not for this time that we're here to build a little empire for ourselves in this earth. But salvation is an incredible fact. Because we have hope in the future. We have a resting place. We need to appreciate our salvation. And during difficult times, we need to hold on to that even more tighter. As believers, we need to continually renew our appreciation for salvation. It's not based upon material things, hoping that, that hopes that will ultimately escape us, things of this world, but building our hope upon promise, grace, what is to happen in the future. Because only God's grace is sufficient for us, sufficient for life. We need to be consumed by that. And that is the important frame of mind we need to have. What are we to do when we're persecuted? What are we to do when we're going through trials and difficulties? Is that we need to hope 
Again, in the truth of God and rest in that. The word of God is sufficient for our lives. That's where our hope comes from. And reflecting on the position we have and the end. That is our hope. Hope, understanding the, the past grace that has been given to us at the moment of justification. And the hope we have in the future glorification that we'll go through. And that's a wonderful promise. And that's why we live. That's why we live. In the middle of that, there's sanctification. That's what we're going to talk about here. Believer's position, number two, points to holiness. And Peter quotes Leviticus 12 here. Be holy, for I am holy. You know, if you think about it, as I meditated upon this this week, ultimately, very purpose for our existence as Christians is holiness. The very existence of our purpose, purpose of our existence, is holiness. The very purpose of our redemption is holiness. We, are, we were redeemed to reflect God. If our desire to glorify God is not of our holiness, that's not the right godly desire. Us glorifying God should be byproduct, is the byproduct of us striving to be holy as God is holy. You see that? We don't glorify God, then become holy. But we, are, we, be, are we strive to be holy, that glorifies God. You see the difference? Because I think many people could act holy, right? Many people could act holy. Because holiness is an action. We could act holy. Can unbelievers attempt to act holy? I'm sure if you put an unbeliever here, he could or she could act or try to attempt. It may seem like and fool people to attempt to be more holier than any one of us here. And that could be easily done. But is that truly holy? No. You need to be a believer first. Believers are to be holy. It's not an option. It's not an option. So after giving hope, Peter warns the believer what is not holy. What is not holy? It is conformity to this world. We are to avoid conformity to the world. So what is the conformity? Uh, what is the remedy for conformity to this world? It's holiness. Simple as that. God is distinct from us as fallen man or we're totally depraved. God causes us to live a life that is distinct. Holiness, in, in essence, is setting apart. Different. Okay? God is completely different from us. And we are to strive ourselves after that. Right? You know, in Romans 12.2, R.C. Sproul says about that, you know, living sacrifice you know, literally means, living, to live as living sacrifice means Nonconformity, not conforming to this world. That's how you live living sacrifice. How do we live as living sacrifice, nonconforming? To live in holiness. You know, there's two aspects of holiness. You know, once we are saved, we are holy, right? We are set apart. Means our positionally we have been consecrated to God, and we are positionally holy. 
right? As believers, we will be glorified. Second, in our lives, our actions should be holy. First Thessalonians says, For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. And New Testament is full with that. It's an action. Striving for holiness day by day, transformation of the heart. You know, bunch of defiled sinners like us, trying to live holy and become holy is the biggest miracle of all. Right? Tonight you could go home and see Charlton Heston part the Red Sea. But the greatest miracle of all is bunch of defiled sinners like us. All the members of Cornerstone trying to be holy. And at times we succeed in that. God allows us to succeed in that. That is the biggest miracle of all. Right? How privileged is that? How awesome is that? That in a small way, in small moments of our time, in our lives, that we become a little bit like God. And that's what God wants. It's unfathomable, right? That we could somehow become like God. But how can we become like God? So we say, we're sinners. How can we become like God? How dare we? Can we? Sure. How do we know that? Because the Bible says so. Bible, God tells us, be holy like me. He told that to Israel. And he tells that to the New Covenant Christians as well. That's what Peter is reiterating. You know, the basic definition, biblical definition of holiness is someone who is free from, um, it was opposite of like common or profane things. Someone who is pure. Okay. Someone who is pure. You know, we, everyone in Cornerstone to be a member takes fundamental faith, FOF. And the one thing that we teach is, we take two weeks to teach attributes of God. I think the most important attribute of them all is holiness of God. Okay? I think all His attributes, I think the overarching attribute of all His attributes is holiness. Right? Everything is out of His holiness. God cannot act other than to be holy. But God could act in love, but God could act in wrath as well, right? But they're both out of holiness. Everything, they say even love is controlled by His holiness. It's true. You know, Jerry Bridges writes, Holiness describes in both majesty of God and purity and moral perfection of His nature it is an essential part of the nature of God. This means that God cannot but know what is right, so He cannot do, cannot do, or cannot but do what is right. Okay? Because He's holy, he only does what is right. You know, to do something holy for us is major effort, right? Monumental effort. But God does them because that's His nature. You know, holiness is emphasized through the entire Old and the New Testament. Leviticus twelve nineteen, as Lord said to Moses, and speak the entire assembly of Israel, say to them, "Be holy, because I am your God and holy." God is holy. Again, it's set apart. It's a separateness. It's different from heathen attitudes. Is the most fundamental reality of all. God is utterly unique, classed by Himself. He's set apart from any of His creation. Nothing compares to Him. So why are we called 
What are we called? What are we called? Saints, right? Saints. What is the definition of a saint? Is a holy person. A set-apart person is a holy person. You know, in the Westminster Catechism, for the instructions for children, the first question they ask, right? We all know this. What is the chief end of man? And the answer is, it is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We know what glorifying God is. We talked about this earlier. What is enjoying forever? The, the latter part of that answer. You know how we could enjoy Him? only way we could enjoy Him is to be holy. If we're on the other side of holiness, there's no way to enjoy Him. Okay? You know, if a sinful person, let's kind of remove our thoughts, think out of the box. If a sinful person was in heaven, I think he would be miserable. Right? There's nothing compatible with him and God. Right? We are able to enjoy him one day and even enjoy him while we're here at the moments of holiness. When do we appreciate God the most? Is when we are holy. When we're living and walking right with God, that's when we're most holy. That's how you know you're holy. Right? Are you enjoying God today? When you hear a great sermon, maybe not today, but other days, I'm sure you have at least heard one in Cornerstone, hear a great sermon. Do you feel and you're blessed and feel holy? I know, I know it's not a tangible feeling. Why? You appreciate God. Because you're blessed by His Word. The Word of God came alive in your life at that moment when you heard it. When you go home and meditate upon it, really blesses your heart, encourage you, because you have heard something that's holy and has blessed your heart. And it draws you near to God. That's all a chain of sequence of action that happens through holiness. You know, what holiness isn't, and Jesus defines it very clear in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. You know, he shocked the self righteous Jewish leaders. He says, Blessed are the whom who are regarded as cursed. He told people that the righteousness of scribes and Pharisees would never get, in, get them to heaven. Their legalistic views of law and their underlying principle was condemned. That especially the external religions. Religious acts on appearance was meaningless because it lacked the heart. In Mark 7, it talks about external holiness again, being condemned. In Mark 7, 1, it says, The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered together around him when they had come, into, come from Jerusalem and had seen some of the disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, unwashed. Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they were carefully washed their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have been received in order to observe, such as the washing of the cup, pitcher, and the copper pots. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked them, Why do you disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat the bread of impure hands? And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy, you hypocrites, as it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching the doctrines of priests of man. You know, scribes and Pharisees were annoyed that the disciples did not ceremonially wash their hands before eating. You know, 
That's not even in the law. That was the tradition of the elders. They're following the tradition. This was what Christ was condemning. They're hypocritical, superficial. This is classical Pharisaic. This is classical hypocritical holiness. It means nothing. And Jesus condemned this. That we can't be hypocrites. You know, Peter calls us today in this text, calls us to holiness as obedient children. Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were in your ignorance, but like holy one, you are called. Be holy as yourselves in your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. You know, from this, from this text, it gives us few directives. Peter gives us several directives. Number one, to be holy, we need to obey the word of God. It says, as obedient children. Okay? As obedient children. Then, as obedient children, Peter writes, as a Jewish man, is a Jewish idiom. It refers to people, one who char- one is characterized by obedience to their parents. So it's during the first century, during that time, obeying the ch- uh, children, obeying parents, was a must. Right? It was strongly followed and encouraged, unlike today. We are to be obedient as we are to, um, as children are obedient to their parents, obedient to God. It means obedient to the Word of God. Holiness is accomplished in our lives by the Spirit of God that enables us to know God, obey His commands, which are in the Word. Right? Secondly, I said this before, and I encourage Miriam, is that we're not to be holy. We're to be holy by giving up our former desires. We need to be dramatically different from pre-salvation to post-salvation. Not conforming to this world. Conforming to our former desires. Evil desires. Ephesians 4.17 says, Therefore, at this I say, therefore, affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as Gentiles also walk, in futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they have become callous and given themselves over the sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity and greediness. But you do not learn Christ in this way. If you, indeed you have heard Him, you have been taught in Him, just as the truth in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted according to the lust of the seed, that you renew your spirit of your mind and put on the new, put on the new self, which is likeness of God that has been created in righteousness and the holiness of truth. You know, the natural man is mastered by lust. It's conformed by them. You know, we are major creatures of our instincts, our impulses. If our former self, our former desires comes, in our, comes through our desires. Sometimes it comes through our desire for wealth or power or just simple pleasures. That is ignorance. Spiritual ignorance. That's living like before. In Ephesians 2, it's like living like sons of disobedience. Constantly seeking satis- satisfaction in the things of this world. 
you know, you put that back into context. Former self. People at that time were probably second-guessing themselves, saying, maybe if I go back as an unbeliever, my life will be spared by the Roman government. Why go through all this trouble? Why don't I go back to my former self? You see how that could truly imply? But in our lives, it's a little bit different, right? We act as, we were, as if we're back pre-salvation. You know, the desire, understanding that we need to be rejected, be, be an outcast in this world, and having the new desire, that is the beginning of holiness. Rejection, persecution, is beginning of holiness. That is what, not just what God wants, but desiring what God wants. Not just doing what God wants, but desiring to do what God wants. You know, Peter, Second Peter, chapter 2, Peter has a graphic description of what this means. In First Peter 2, 19, it says, The promising them freedom while them themselves are slaves of corruption. For the man is to overcome what is enslaved. For if after they have escaped defilement of this world by the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they again are entangled in them, are overcome, and the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than have known it at all. To turn away from holy command and deliver to them, it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its vomit, and a sow, after washing, returns to the wallowing mire. That is graphic picture of a person returning to former desires. As a dog returning to vomit, or a sow returning to the mire of a pig pen. What sense does that make spiritually? Peter is encouraging people, hang on, I know it's difficult. It is difficult. But hang on to the hope and be holy at the same time. Another directive he comes us is clear that I've said this before. We need to imitate God. Imitate. Strive for perfection. At the core, we desire to strive after what God wants. And we hate what He hates. What does He hate? Sin. And it's an important factor. God's hatred for sin. And last of the directives I think He gives us is we are to be holy in our conduct. It's regardless of what we do in life. Whether we're teachers, accountants, lawyers, writers, or advertisers, or bankers, homemakers, students, pastors, we are to be holy because God is holy. Holiness is a lifestyle. A lifestyle of not conforming. In Hebrews 12.14, holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. No man shall see the Lord. You know, for believers, holiness does not come when you are forgiven or cleansing of our sin. But begins when life opposes sin. We may practice holiness in our lives. Personal holiness, dear saints, is very, very important. It is our lives. 
Let's talk about, I'll give a few examples to throw out there. What is practical holiness? What is it? Then one, showing love for the brethren, not slandering, backbiting, cheating, or dishonesty, or unfair dealings with people, but one is charitable, caring, finding ways to serve others, feeding a hungry brother. It is also showing humility, esteeming others better than yourself. Very difficult. We talked about sin. You know, a few years ago, we had a pastor, Rick Holland, from Grace Community, speak at a retreat. What did he say about sin, shunning every sin? Is not be, don't be entertained by what Christ died for. How often is this world entertained? How often are Christians entertained by what Christ died for? What sense does it make for believers? I think one truly practical one is it is a negative one is I think one greatest challenge to practical holiness to Christians this day is not I think persecution and everything set aside it's laziness that's a huge challenge for us because it's very comfortable living in this this country this stage in the world the greatest comforts you'll see our standard of living is tremendous compared to the rest of the world. It's easy to be lazy. Like Daniel, we should seek, give every occasion to praise God. Holiness transcends, transcends all circumstances. We, we, it is difficult being holy every day. But if we're a believer, our hearts should yearn to be holy, which pleases God. But I think, if, or if our desires, if you, the honest question, if you, your desires, it's difficult for you to desire holiness, and perhaps a serious question should be asked, is your faith in Christ genuine? It is not an option for Christians. It's a clear command of God. Do you desire to please Him and be obedient to His Word, not conform to the world? Or are you hanging on to your former lusts and ignorance? Do you desire that more? You know, holiness is a continual process. Continual process. And we can never relax. Right? We might have lived the 10 years of holiness, but it's the next moment that counts. It's not achieved or attained until the end. You know, Dr. Pettigrew said also in our retreat a couple of years ago, said, what is being spirit-filled? Is one obedience at a time over a long period of time. Okay? That is our sanctification, right? Over a long period of time, constantly doing it. It's all time thing. That's what Vince Lombardi said. Those of you sisters don't know Vince Lombardi, uh, the coach of the Green Bay Packers, won the first two Super Bowls. He said, winning is all-time thing, not a sometime thing. Okay? Holiness, I'm not Vince Lombardi, <laughs> holiness is all-time thing, not sometime thing. We should strive to be holy all the time. It's not something, a switch we turn it on and off. Right? All-time thing. 
You know, holiness, again I said, is, was purpose for our salvation. To be holy and blameless in His sight. It gives evidence to our salvation. It shows that we truly trust Christ. You know, preaching, evangelizing, serving, administering, encouraging, setting up for snacks, serving on meals on wheels, attending worship, attending flock, singing praises, are all, should be all, should be out of our desire to be like Him, our desire to be holy because of Him. You know, the holiness just to put this in perspective as I end this, is holiness, we shouldn't strive, we shouldn't just look at how can we be holy. That's not the question. The focus of holiness is God's holiness. God's holiness. That should be the center of our focus. God is the center. If God is the center, our holiness will follow. Our focus should be just obedience. And everything else, if we obey, will fall into place. And what keeps us from being holy? As I said before, it is sin. Our fellowship was broken in the beginning because of sin. Sin is the issue. Because the heart is deceitful. We have this seed of indwelling sin. And sin has an outworking through our desires. You know, sin becomes an issue because God is holy, right? It's all interconnected. It's against His nature. We are to strive against anything else that is against God's nature. Idolatry, impurity, immorality. We need to put sin to death in our lives. You know, the mortification of sin cannot be carried out by our own strength. It's John Owen says, the Spirit alone is sufficient for this world. The Holy Spirit in you must do it. It's the only means of, what Romans 12 says, the renewing of our minds. Our minds should be renewed through the Word of God. And that is what sanctification is. To be sanctified becomes, is, means to become holier every day. Day by day. Decision by decision. Therefore, set our hopes. Let's set our hopes on God's grace and let our lives reflect God's holiness. And just a few questions as applications to you, to everyone here, including myself. How can we know that we are being holy? Just to bear fruit, right? The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control few questions to ask. You know, what is in our lives today that detracts us from focusing on that grace that is to come? What is hindering your walk today that keeps us from holiness? What are we holding on today? What are we keeping? What desires do we still have of our former selves? And lastly, how are we 
practicing holiness in our lives. And as believers, everyone, God calls us to be holy. And that's an awesome task. It is an awesome task. Unfathomable task. How can sinners like us to be, become holy? It is not within our power. It is solely by the Holy Spirit that has been granted to us, to given to us, to act that out. I pray that everyone here, our desire would conform to that of, that is of God, that we would submit to the Word of God and obey Him day by day, becoming holy, to be in line with Him and to be used by Him and to serve Him the rest of our days, wherever we're called. I believe that's why Brother Marcus and Pastor James are over in Kazakhstan. I believe that's why all of you signed up for summer missions. And all of you who are serving in ministries at Cornerstone, I hope the motivation there is to be holy. And that should be the only motivation. If we do that, we will glorify God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your awesome words. We thank you for the words of Peter as he penned these things. It's so pertinent to us. We see the difficulty the saints had endured in the first century. We know that in this life here, this day in this country, it's much easier for us. But yet, it is such a challenge. You know, everything is passing away, withering, but we know the Word of God endures forever. May we cling on to that, understanding that we have hope of the grace that has been given to us through our Lord Jesus Christ, that we have future with Him. And while we're here on this earth, we may live and walk the path of righteousness, walk the path of holiness, striving to be holy. God, it is not within us. It is not in the grasp of our power to even attempt and to succeed. But Lord, it is by the Spirit in us that it allows us to attempt and strive after. May our hearts be aligned with you that we may awaken every morning to live as saints, as holy people that you have chosen to live on this earth. May our service, may our life for you be in holiness. In Jesus' name.